Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Hello, and welcome to episode six of the podcast. Thanks for joining us this week for what is a slightly different episode. One of the motivators we had here at Upper House for creating the podcast was as a way to highlight some of our past speakers and events. We just celebrated our sixth anniversary here, and we've hosted hundreds of events uh, in that time, and many of them we've recorded. And we'll be continuing to record new interviews and bringing new people onto the uh, podcast. But we thought for this episode, we'd pull out a recent, a really excellent talk given by Kelly Nikondeha uh, on the women of Exodus. So I'm joined by my colleague, uh, Dan Johnson, who was the program curator for Kelly's talks. Hey, Dan. Hey, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, Can you tell us a bit about Kelly? Yeah, you know, Kelly's a really interesting voice. Um, She is the author of two books. Um, One is called Adopted, the Sacrament of Belonging in a Fractured World. And then the talk that uh, we're doing, uh, showcasing here, is on her second book that just actually came out in 2020. Both of her books are with Erdman's, um, but it's defiant what the women of Exodus teach us about freedom. And so she is kind of a multifaceted author. Um, her and her husband um, have a nonprofit that they run in Burundi called Communities of Hope. And this uh, is probably a little bit modeled around uh, Hope International or World Vision, something along those lines. Um, they do some economic development pieces. They, uh, they help families. Um, they're putting forth some really interesting baking structures right now Mm. in Burundi and helping families with that. Um, Her husband is Burundi. They have two adopted children from Burundi as well. So just kind of an interesting family dynamic. They usually spend half of their year in the U.S. and then half of it in Burundi. So kind of not your typical like suburban family kind of structure in that way. Um, But she's just a really, I think, an interesting up-and-coming voice. And she just brought some really... uh, interesting things into the mix of this talk and, the, and some others. Yeah. And so she's really got her feet in a number of, of, of camps there, the, the sort of nonprofit world, as well as, as the theological world. The books are very theologically grounded um, and, and informative in that way as well. Uh, so Kelly was with us uh, last year uh, for a handful of talks, each on different topics. But the one we wanted to raise to the surface today is about the women of Exodus. So can you just set that up a bit for us, what that talk uh, is trying to get at? Yeah, I mean, it's really about a couple of things. Um, Defiance, (laughs) which is kind of the titling of the book, but uh, really goes through the narrative story around Moses um, and the unique women that are all part of his story that ought to make decisions um, to go against either law and order that was currently in place, to go against kind of maybe some religious practices that were in place, 
Um, and it really brings into scope um, how not only did they save, physically save uh, Moses's life, um, but it really is a trajectory for uh, some of the decisions or some of the happenings of Moses's life that we see in the narrative of scripture. And uh, Kelly loves Old Testament stuff. Um, and so you see that come alive. Um, she is energetic. Um, you'll see uh, variants in her voice and different things that just really bring the story alive. She's an excellent storyteller. And I'm really excited that our uh, audience gets to hear this talk. Yeah, really a model of how to talk through Zoom in a way that's engaging. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, and that's a skill, right? It's 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 hard to do that uh, well, uh, particularly for for a talk. So uh, it's a it's a she does a great sort of close reading of the story, which I always love. I always love hearing a, an expert uh, on the text sort of pull out things that y- you might gloss over if you were just reading it in its English sort of normal translation. Yeah. Um, but she can really pull out things. Absolutely. So finally, Dan, it's been a couple months now since Kelly was with us. Looking back, what's just one of the insights or takeaways that uh, you really treasure that that she left us with? Yeah, I I mean, I think the thing that really kind of I think about during her time with us um, is really about the different experiences that she brought to our community, Um, you know, multifaceted. She brought a talk on uh, community development and a theology of community development that can be people that are passionate about, uh, you know, work that's happening somewhere else in the world or something that's happening in your own neighborhood or street, um, church community that you're a part of. So there's some really interesting insights there um, that bridge both of those gaps, which I think is interesting uh, in a lot of ways. Um, She gave a talk on her adopted book, and um, we're an adoptive family, and so it (laughs) really spoke into a lot of the the things that we've experienced as an adoptive family. Um, if you're interested in that world at all, I would encourage folks to look at the, the YouTube for that. Um, it's on there. Um, and then obviously the Defiant book that we uh, are going to hear about um, in this talk today. Awesome. Well, thanks, Dan. Uh, all of Kelly's events uh, with us are on our YouTube channel, which we have linked to in the show notes to this episode. Uh, all of them are worth your time. So let us know if you have any comments or reactions to today's episode by emailing us at podcast at slbrownfoundation.org. And with that, we'll jump right into Kelly Nicondea's talk on the women of Exodus. Uh, Today, I basically want to do some storytelling. So sit back, relax. This is a grown-up story hour. (laughs) So two women are standing in front of Pharaoh. Now, these are not just any midwives. Shifra and Pua are the leaders of the midwifery guild in uh, the Hebrew community in Egypt. They are the ones who serve these Hebrews who we're told are so uh, fruitful. They are are multiplying at such a fast rate. They are coming, you know, they're, they're prolific. This community is just bursting at the seams. Um, And it's this community that is just growing in numbers and growing in a certain kind of greatness uh, that really threatened the Pharaoh of their day. Um, And really, Pharaohs haven't changed much, have they, (laughs) when it comes to their fixation with numbers and greatness. And so Pharaoh calls these women to meet with him. And he looks at them and he says, when the Hebrew women are at the birth stool, when they're about 
to give birth. When you can ascertain that it's a baby boy, kill him. But if it's a baby girl, eh, you can let her live. Pharaohs always underestimate the women. So Shifra and Pua leave the court of Pharaoh and they rush to meet up with all the other midwives who are probably really eager for their return. What did Pharaoh want with, with us? So they tell them what Pharaoh's plan is to, to kill the baby boys. That's what we're supposed to do. And we're supposed to do it quietly to not raise any attention. Well, what the, the story tells us is that when, the, when these midwives left, they were more, they feared God more than Pharaoh. The text says that they feared God. And so when they met with their fellow midwives, the decision was made, no, no, no. We are going to keep on delivering babies in accordance with the God of life. We are going to do what our mothers and their mothers and their mothers before them have taught us to do to deliver baby boys and baby girls, however God sends them to us. They organized the first act of civil disobedience ever recorded in scripture. These women defied Pharaoh. So we don't know how long this campaign lasted. We don't know how many baby boys these midwives saved from this death edict. But at some point, Pharaoh figured it out and he summoned them a second time to come back to his court and stand before him. What have you done? Why have you done this? He raged. And the women looked at him, the midwives, and they're like, well, I mean, the, the, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They were using his prejudice against him. And they continued, you know, the Hebrew women, they're just so strong and they're babies. They just come too fast for us to intervene. They lied. And for that, scripture says, God rewarded the midwives with families of their own. You know, thank God for Shifra and Pua, for their subversive strength, because the Hebrew community kept growing. Scripture says that their community increased mightily because of their work. This time, Pharaoh's covert operation didn't work this time. But I love how the storyteller, uh, you, he uses a very classic Hebrew literary device, names. He tells us about Shifra and Pua, but he leaves Pharaoh unnamed. By doing so, he's directing our attention to, to the women. The names are meant to show us where to focus our attention, where the action of the story is. Shifra and Pua, remember their names. Remember their salvific work among you. Pharaoh, they come and go. You don't even need to commit their names to memory. So already we are being told that the women are worth paying attention to in this story. And I love um, Dr. Will Gaffney, uh, who has written Womanist Midrash, says that uh, in Shifra and Pua, we see the first deliverers in the story of deliverance. And I love that the first time we see deliverers in Exodus, they're women. I love it. So when Pharaoh realized that he had been outmaneuvered by a group of organized women, he knew he had to change up his, um, his strategy. And so what Exodus tells us is that Pharaoh commanded all his people, all his people, the, the text says, and he told them that when you see a baby boy from the Hebrew community, you can kill him, drown him in the Nile. 
If it's a baby girl, if it's a daughter of a Hebrew, you can let her live. Again, totally underestimating the women. But I don't know if you notice what just happened there, but Pharaoh just made every Egyptian complicit in his death edict. And, and every time I read this particular verse, um, it always makes me really nervous, <laughs> to be honest, uh, because I think about the ways in which I am complicit. How have I been made complicit um, as a citizen of my own country or empire? How have I been made complicit as a subject of this pharaoh? I mean, it should make us all pause and wonder. Um, now, maybe most Egyptians didn't hear the edict. Maybe, you know, they weren't within earshot of pharaoh when he stood behind, you know, the Egyptian seal and made his proclamation declaring death to baby boys and deputizing every Egyptian to the task. But the text doesn't give Egyptians an exemption clause. It just says all. And I think we need to take the text seriously, um, especially in these days. Meanwhile, other side of the river, we hear that a woman has conceived and bore a child. We'll learn later in the story that her name is Jochebed. And she is the son, or she's the daughter of the house of Levi, or maybe even Levi himself. So she comes from a very good family, but she has a baby at a very bad time when you know the political landscape in Egypt, right? For nine months, Jochebed carries this child and she doesn't know. Girl, or boy, life or death, nine months of not knowing. That took some kind of bravery. I imagine it also involved some amount of trauma. And so we probably shouldn't rush past what seems like just a tiny verse in the Exodus story, but all the freight in that, that this woman would have been both brave and traumatized during the tenure of her pregnancy. But finally, the time comes and I assume the midwives were there with her, acting as the tender hands and the strong arms of God, bringing her baby into the world. And when this baby was, was out and in their arms, I am sure there were words of praise and blessings and sighs too deep for words. It was a boy. But Jochebed, the, the, the story says that when Jochebed saw her baby boy, she called him Tov. Tov is the Hebrew word for good. God created the light on the first day and called it good. God created the oceans and called them good. God created the trees and the uh, bushes and the fruit on the trees and called it all Tov. Good. This is the very word she uses to describe the first glance at her baby boy. She recognized all of creation goodness in her son. It didn't matter that Pharaoh called him a thug. It didn't matter that Hebrew said he was born in the wrong zip code on the wrong side of the Nile. She knew he was as good as anything God had ever created. And the story says she hid him for three months. Three months. That was all she had. It was all she had to protect him from the unjust world of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's soldiers and the uh, mercenaries that his rhetoric and agenda unleashed. 
Three months was all she had to protect her baby boy from silent Egyptians. Egyptians who remained quiet as baby boys floated down the Nile River. Three months was all she had to sing liberation lullabies to her baby boy. And boy, did she sing! She sang of horses and chariots tossed into the sea. She sang of girls dancing and drumming underneath a golden moon. She sang of little boys running free and unafraid alongside the Nile River, trying to fill his imagination with goodness for three months. But during those not long enough months, she would wonder, especially when she was down by the river washing clothes, She would look at the water line of the Nile and wonder which current is going to carry away my baby boy. Which one will be his final, you know, his his end. She thought a lot about Noah's Ark during those days. He was able to circumvent floodwaters, wasn't he? If only her boy could have a similar story. But one day when she was out doing her laundry by the river, she was looking across and she noticed another woman. And this woman seemed to be different. She was was tall and poised. Maybe she was a royal. I don't know. But she was different. And, and, And somehow they caught eyes. And this woman, like, looked at her. She didn't look around her or through her. She, Jokowed was like, am I losing it? Am I imagining things? But she really could have sworn that this woman and her had a moment. Was that even possible? That somebody on the other side of the Nile was not like all the other Egyptians? That maybe this one wasn't like Pharaoh? Was that even possible? She went to bed that night wondering. The story says that when she could hide him no longer, probably because he was growing and louder and more mobile as babies do, that when she could hide him no longer, You know, she had to do something, and she had. Jochebed had an audacious idea. She went out and searched for a basket with the tightest weave she could find, and she got some pitch, and she slathered it on to make this little raft watertight. This was like a makeshift ark. And so she gets into the Nile. She She puts her little baby boy in this ark. She hikes up her skirt, and she carries him across the Nile River, undaunted by crocodiles and snakes and Leviathan that is known to haunt the waters. Like most mothers I know, she would do anything to secure the safety of her son. She gets to the other side and she places this raft in a thicket of reeds um, so that it won't uh, go downstream. And she puts it in the thicket of reeds right where this woman could possibly find him. This is what it had come to. The injustice of Egypt that was breathing down her neck that meant to kill her son. That injustice pushed her to have to make a terrible, hard choice. But in that moment, the most loving thing she could consider was him surviving, even if it wasn't with her. She was betting everything on the humanity of that one woman. And Jochebed was in the resistance movement now, wasn't she? Right up there with the midwives trying to save baby boys from Pharaoh's death edict. But the odds weren't in the favor of the mothers and the midwives. I mean, Pharaoh and his policies loomed as large as the pyramids. What chance did they really have? 
And of course, this is what pharaohs want us to believe, that we really don't stand a chance because they hold all the mechanisms of the government in their hand. We better just give up. And yet these women continued birthing, delivering, hiding, and saving babies. They continued going back and forth across the river, enacting small salvations. These women were undaunted. It's pretty amazing, right? So this woman comes down, probably for a bath, a little dip into the pool, into the Nile River, as it were. And she sees something in the reed. She sees it waving. There's something over there. And she tells her servant, go and get that for me and bring it here. And so the, the handmaid goes and she brings the, the basket. And the woman, I mean, she, she doesn't even need to see it. She can already hear that there's a baby crying in this basket. But the story says that she opened it and she looked. And there was this baby boy crying. This one was alive. Now, I don't think this was the first time that the royal daughter saw a baby boy from the other side. See, if we were to understand the story, she often bathed down by the edge of the river. I imagine that she loved to take walks along the Nile, maybe right about sunset, that time of day when the, the sky turns burnt orange with threads of pink. And I imagine that one day as she was walking, maybe barefoot in the sand, that a baby washed up in front of her, a little boy bloated and silent with death. And that little boy almost touched her feet. And there he was. And, 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 and the royal, you know, the, her staff tried to run and grab the little boy and kind of erase the evidence because royal women were not meant to see the underside of the empire. It was better that they just believed it was fake news. But, but she knew what she saw, this little boy, there he was dead at her feet. This was no hoax. This was real. And she started weeping at what her father was doing. This wasn't a rumor anymore. I imagine that that day she felt quite powerless. Matter of fact, I don't even really have to imagine it because I remember a similar day. Um, I remember the day that I saw the picture, maybe you do too, of a little, babe, a little boy in a red t-shirt and blue shorts washed up onto a beach in Turkey. His family was trying to escape an unsafe life. They were refugees, but this little boy didn't make it. And I remember seeing him and feeling, yeah, I'm privileged, but I am paralyzed to do anything about that little boy, about the massive refugee crisis in our world. And I imagine that that is how the royal daughter felt. Sure, I'm Pharaoh's daughter, but I'm not even his favorite one. And while I may have some measure of, of ease in my life, I can't change royal policy. And so I imagine that this woman felt, yes, I am a privileged person, but I am paralyzed to do anything. I am powerless. But this one baby that she was now holding in her hands was alive. He was crying. She could do something about this one. And right about that time, the story says that, that a young girl came up to her and said, would you like me to help you get a nursemaid for your baby? See, this was the daughter of Jochebed and Amram. And she had been watching what was happening to her baby brother. And she had this idea that if she could get these two women together, her mom, Jochebed, and Pharaoh's daughter, that maybe they could form an alliance of some sort and save her baby brother. And it worked. The royal woman told her, go, 
go get him, go get a, a nurse made for me. And we all knew, or we should, where there would have been plenty of milk, right? Women who had lost their babies and still carried milk. They were on the other side of the river. Let the daughters live. That's what Pharaoh said. Little did he know the capacity of daughters, the daughter of Levi, the daughter of Jochebed and Amram, his own daughter, that they would be able to subvert his authority. He had no idea. He had no imagination for that. And yet, even uh, in the face of patriarchy, these women acted. It didn't matter if they were in the, the shadows of the brickyards or if they were in the courts of Pharaoh. These daughters stepped forward and enacted liberation. It's quite amazing. Never underestimate the women. Never. Now, I imagine at some point, the royal daughter must have made her way to the other side of the river, wanting to visit this little baby boy. Probably went over while uh, Jochebed was still breastfeeding her child, right? And I imagine that she must have met Shifra and Pua the first people to defy her father. Oh my God, what a meeting that must have been. But she probably wouldn't have been there long before she would have heard the women sharing about the hardship of living in the shadow of those brickyards, hearing the stories of hurt and loss. And I imagine, you know, that as Jochebed and the midwives and the other mothers would talk, they would, they would get so angry. Their anger would be like a white hot kiln at the way that Pharaoh treats them and makes them live and makes them lose. And I imagine that Pharaoh's daughter, as she sat among them, bristled. Oh, but not all Egyptians are like him. We are not all like him. I can imagine her just wanting to say it and restraining herself. And instead listening, listening to their testimony and believing what they're saying, letting their anger educate her and maybe even recalibrate her own sensibilities because then she would have been able to feel their legitimate anger and she would have been able to walk in deep solidarity with them. It's, it's quite beautiful to me how these two women, the young, young Miriam and Jochebed, pulled the royal daughter into the Nile network. I mean, they recruited her into the resistance movement too. They created an opportunity for her to break out of her paralysis, to learn how to leverage her privilege on behalf of those who needed her to show up. And they gave her the opportunity to be part of that. They didn't think that just because she was Egyptian that we should write her off or assume the worst. They gave her a chance to show that she might be different than her father. And so she was able to be a partner with them. Today, we might use the word ally. But here is, think about it. Here's this really unorthodox partnership between an Egyptian woman and Hebrew women, all trying to save baby boys. And I'm just going to say in my sanctified imagination, <laughs> to use another phrase from Dr. Will Gaffney, I imagine this was not the only baby that they saved. Don't you think they would have tried to save more? Don't you think that once they figured out that this might work, don't you think this is a strategy that they tried to employ more than once? I have to believe so. Anyways, we're told about Moses and we all know why, because he's going to have a special role in the rest of the story. But let's take a moment and recognize that these women, these mothers, both 
the birth mother and the adopted mother of Moses, right? These mothers rescued Moses. So we have women with the midwives who defied Pharaoh. And now we have the mothers who rescued Moses. These are some amazing women. So I'm going to fast forward uh, just because there's another word that I want us to consider. So um, when we look further into the Exodus story, we hear that the women, first, we hear first that it's women, find favor with their neighbors. So think about this. There would have been low-income neighborhoods where both Hebrews and Egyptians might kind of share some of the same communities, right? And we also would have had opportunities for some of the Hebrew women who would have lived under the roof and served alongside the Egyptians or served the Egyptian women, right? There were opportunities for overlap of these communities. And we're told that they would have been neighbors to each other and that the women kind of led the way in creating neighborly relationships with other Egyptian women. And uh, we hear about this first uh, in Exodus 3, where uh, we're told that God says to Moses, I'm going to give, I'm going to give you guys favor with the Egyptians. And it's going to happen as the women embrace the Egyptian women in neighborliness. So that when the time comes, those Hebrew women are going to be able to ask for jewelry, for clothing, for money. And the Egyptian women are just going to hand it over. And that is what plundering Egypt is going to look like. So God uses this, you know, this is the method that God says he's going to use to plunder Egypt. It's going to have to do with neighborliness and favor and the movement of goods. This isn't a movement by force. This is a movement via favor. And we actually hear this, this triplicate, this neighbor, favor, plunder, three times. We hear it in Exodus 3 when God tells Moses what he's going to do. We hear it again in Exodus 11. And then we hear it in the past tense in Exodus 12. After the last uh, of the 10 plagues has happened, we hear that, in fact, this is, this is the way that it worked, that, that the Hebrews were able to look at their Egyptian neighbors, ask for what they needed. It was given to them, and that was how they plundered Egypt. So again, the women were part, a very integral part of plundering Egypt. It's, a, it's an interesting thing to consider that really those, that plundering Maybe a modern word for it would be reparation. That at some point in the relationship between neighbors, they would have shared stories. They would have built relationships. And when the time came for Hebrews to leave, even their Egyptian neighbors would have known um, there needs to be some recompense. And so we'll compensate you as we can. Here, take the Take this, this necklace that is a family heirloom. Take my, my bridal trove that I've been, you know, the, the, the dresses that are beaded and weighted with jewels. Take these things as a way of saying, I'm sorry for the pain that my country has caused you and take it and start a new life. That really, these are small scale acts of reparation. I think sometimes we get stuck thinking, oh, reparations is such a big, the numbers are so big and daunting and but there in Egypt, we see that reparation happens, the small scale between neighbors who love and care for each other. Um, I think it's a challenging and beautiful picture to consider. But 
this is what I want to offer you today is that um, here we see women and they are defying Pharaoh, rescuing Moses, plundering Egypt. This is what faithfulness looks like in perilous times, according to this story in the book of Exodus. Now, this was their Egypt, and this is how they handled it. We have our own Egypt, complete with our own Pharaoh, our own babies to save, our own empires to at least restructure. And we are, I think that we are meant to reimagine what that could look like. I think that's the, one of the beautiful challenges of the Exodus story. Now, um, my, I grew up in the evangelical church. That's um, where I was raised, learned um, Bible stories and uh, did Bible studies as I grew older. And um, the picture I had gotten about women in the Bible was always one that was women were kind of um, decentered and domesticated. Nobody ever taught me this about the Exodus women. We just all heard about Moses and Aaron <laughs> and maybe maybe Miriam with her tambourine. But I was given a story of women that, like I said, was decentered and domesticated. And so no surprise when I looked into the church, actually, I saw a similar dynamic. Growing up in my church, women were often decentered and domesticated. We were not allowed to be part of an elder board. We were not allowed to preach in front of the entire church. We often didn't get to be part of the decision-making about the vision um, of our congregations in the life of our community. We were allowed to bring the, you know, the hot plate. We were allowed to rule Fellowship Hall, but not to be involved in some of the other ways that the church decided how they would minister in their community. And I always, you know, I have always loved scripture. From the very first time I sat and listened to this story in Sunday school, I have been a fan. I love scripture. But I've always felt that somehow I wasn't getting the full story when it came to women. I just always had that sense that what I was told, um, that, it was, that it wasn't complete. And therefore, it wasn't really compelling to me, the, the role of women in, in uh, scripture and in the church, until I discovered these women in the Exodus narrative. And it was like, once I saw them, I couldn't unsee them. I mean, these women were the mentors and the matriarchs that I had longed for all my life right there in scripture. They showed up in their society when they were needed. And they weren't just active in their homes or in their churches. They were active out in their community at large, right? Here we see these women who became agents in a society that needed them at a critical time. They knew their social location, right? They knew where they were vis-a-vis -vis the power structures of their day, what side of the river they were on. They displayed agency. They weren't paralyzed. They were able to act, and they had political impact. I mean, remember, by the end of the story, Pharaoh's army is at the bottom of the Red Sea. The coffers of Egypt have been emptied, and the Hebrew labor force has walked out. These women had political impact. It's an amazing vision, and it's these women have given me, I think, a better trajectory for my theological imagination and even how to consider um, political engagement. These women show us what faithfulness looks like in perilous times. They help us 
uh, imagine what we could do to be faithful in our own perilous times and to follow the leading of the Spirit, whatever the Spirit is leading us to do in our home, in our church, in our community, for the sake of freedom, so that we get to participate in defying pharaohs and their death edicts. We get to participate in rescuing the vulnerable in our communities, and we get to be part of plundering unjust systems for the sake of God's generous justice in the world. Uh, Lately, I've been thinking uh, what it was like when Shifra and Pua died, right? Certainly, they would have been um, icons in the Hebrew community, right? The first people to defy Pharaoh, right? And I wonder, you know, when Shifra died, was she like the patriarch Joseph and saying, oh, my final wish is that you would carry my bones out of here when you leave? Just like, just like Joseph, take us out. Don't let our bones stay in this land of enslavement. Or when Pua died, did she have one final word of admonition to the midwives? Did she look at them and say, always fear God, no matter how dark it gets, no matter how deep your doubt. Always fear God, not Pharaoh. Or Miriam, you know, Miriam by now in the story would have been older and maybe she would have come forward with a dirge that she had composed for this very occasion and with her hand drum and given a word to the people. I imagine that she would have told them, we are not done until Pharaoh is dethroned. And even then, We are not done until we are free and we will leave no neighbor behind. We want everybody to experience God's generous liberation. Sometimes it takes a matriarch to rouse a nation. So I want to encourage you to consider what does faithfulness look like in perilous times? What does it look like to defy Pharaoh, to rescue Moses, to plunder Egypt? to follow the example of Shifra and Pua and Jochebed and Miriam and the daughter of Pharaoh and all the neighbors in the Nile network. May their memory be a revolution. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Bear. Audio engineering by Andy Johnson and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.